I, th- I think because there's so few people that are really experienced in terms of drinking South African wine in the Australian marketplace, you've got to get them hooked and that means you've got to offer a degree of value and, again, exceed their expectations so that they're getting a glass in a restaurant and going, oh, my God, that's amazing and it's only, it's only $15 a glass. That's great. Let's have a bottle. Hello and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. Just a quick message to those who have been messaging with messages of support and and appreciation. Thank you so much. Really, really glad that people are enjoying the podcast. If you find it enjoyable or useful, please share it. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa where the sale and movement of wine is forbidden. Uh, So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We're relying on the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave, so apologies for that. Uh, We've done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have an old friend of mine, Evan Milne of Stock on Hand Wines, based in Torquay on the surf coast southwest of Melbourne in Victoria. He sells the South African wines that we send to Australia alongside his much bigger business of wholesale for a number of high quality boutique brands from Australia and New Zealand. Evan has an unbounding enthusiasm for food and wine. He is a hospitality industry lifer who has decades of experience with most of that time spent in Melbourne. He has a propensity for industry analysis which I've always found engaging and hopefully makes for a great conversation. I initially wanted to chat to Evan about his experiences selling South African wine in the non-traditional market of Australia. Woza doesn't operate there, which we covered. And then we quickly moved on to other topics. We chat about the state of wine in Australia, both from a production and a consumption point of view, and the current trends on restaurant lists in Melbourne. Evan is a true wine professional in the best sense. He always has the industry's best interest at heart. This is evidenced in a small way by his 14-year service as an unpaid board member of Sommeliers Australia. I give you Evan Mill. I'm joined by Evan Milne from, uh, from Melbourne. Evan, how are you? Very well. Cool, man. Thanks for joining me. Um, just a quick one. Um, maybe just if people don't know who you are, maybe just give us a brief rundown of your life in wine up until this point and tell us what you're doing now. Uh, well, it parallels your experience in many ways. Um, worked in fine dining restaurants, including at Vieux de Monde uh, in Melbourne um, and also at the Royal Mail Hotel in Dunkeld uh, and sort of 15 years of, of professional work in restaurants at the, the higher level then evolved into ownership of my own venue. My favourite part of that job was the writing the, the wine list, the beverage program. Uh, it was a small, very small business, but a lot of fun. Um, and that evolved into then graduating into wholesale wine distribution. distribution. So I worked with uh, an importer of French wines for a couple of years and then named Rand, Randall Pollard, who's based in Melbourne, Hard and Soil Wines. And that gave me a taste of sort of working nine to five or nine to six rather than the the cruel hours of hospitality which afforded me then the ability to sort of think about family and that sort of stuff so and having a life myself rather than just devoting it to other people absolutely fell in love with with wine distribution so i set up my own small wine distribution business awesome and just tell us about that well it started in um 2011 and the focus has been small australian producers i think my favorite part of working in the restaurant was sort of sharing stories of wine with customers and most importantly giving them something that exceeded their expectations both in terms of value and quality from a producer that they haven't heard of. So I sort of translated that experience into the wholesale portfolio. So I'm working with 
smaller producers that are very much quality focused, but also offer an incredible value. Um, and you're selling mostly uh, into restaurants? The split's probably about 80% restaurant focused and then um, independent retail. And um, we've got a couple of lines that go through the big boys as well. The big chain so stores. So that's probably about, yeah, about 20% is, is retail. Although okay. obviously the, the current pandemic sort of flipped that entirely on its head. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, slightly skewed figures in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, at least you've got figures to talk about. Yeah, well, exactly. And so you also distribute, represent um, some South African wines that we send over. Yeah, it's, I think it's been a nice evolution um, sort of working with you. I've also imported a couple of wines from New Zealand. So I think now we sort of represent um, all the stories that I get to tell to, to restaurants and retailers in, in Victoria is that we're representing some of the best of the new world. So we've got Australia, New Zealand and Australian stories to celebrate. Quick edit. I think you meant South Africa in there somewhere. And again, it's about sort of quality focused producers that are doing great things. And the other sort of requirement for entry into the portfolio is me, with, with me is that I, want to, I have to want to have the producer in my house and have dinner and share a bottle of wine with them. So there've got to be people I want to hang out with. Because um, as you know, you spend a lot of time on the road with with these people. You want to you want to be invested in them as humans as well as as well as just the wines that they they are making. So you chose Jeanette and you got me. That's um that's a bad, bad deal, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you thought you were getting one and we did the old switcheroo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you stitched me right up, David. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe chat to us about your experience in um, in the conversations you have around South African wine in Melbourne restaurants. We don't send over sort of run of the mill wines. We send over sort of more, as you say, smaller producers. So was David Nardi until recently? Ardi Badnorst, um, the Arlite Vineyards, Blacksmith Wines, and uh, and our own wine, the Richard and Clark. What uh, and obviously Comparative was part of that the, with the Badenhorst stable. What are you finding the responses like? Where does South Africa sit in the in the restaurant trade in Melbourne? Well, the story that I'm trying to share um, is basically your story, which is having been on the ground in South Africa for so many years now and, and discovering these, these wonderful wines that, again, represent great value. But I think most importantly, they're uniquely South African. So the varieties that you're choosing and the producers that you're choosing, they're not wines that could be replicated anywhere else on the planet, both varietally and in terms of the crafting. It's not like you can see them coming out of South America or Australia or the United States. They're, they're sort of very uniquely South African wines. And I think that's something that's resonated really well with particularly sommeliers in Melbourne because, A, the South African wine in Australia is a bit of a curio. If if we've seen wines before, they've tended to be at that very entry-level, cheap and sunshine and a glass sort of segment of the market. And when you're presenting something that offers inherent quality and still at a, a decent price point, that has, I think, pretty solid applications in, in particularly in restaurants in, in Australia. There's a great dining scene in Melbourne, as you well know, and um, people are always looking for something that's a little bit different. Um, customers in, in Australia or in Melbourne tend to drink local and maybe look at Europe for the, the premium end. It's a very curious wine market, so there's always the opportunity to, to explore and, and celebrate other things that are happening in the business landscape right around the world. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty general question, but what would be the sort of the average breakdown of um, local versus imported? And I'm, I'm probably including New Zealand wines as local in this context. 
on a typical sort of restaurant wine list in Melbourne. Obviously, obviously it's a, it's, it's, it varies it's, hugely, it's, but yeah, it's hugely venue specific. There's plenty of there's plenty of Italian restaurants that only have Italian wines grown in Italy. There are venues now that are even focusing just on particular regions of particular countries, and they're just celebrating that particular region and that style of food. But in a general sense, I think you'd see a balanced list is probably 50-50 Australian wine or local wine and then 50% sort of celebrating the rest of the world. It's a slide rule. There's no, there's no definites in it, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I don't have the, I don't have the macro data in terms of like analysing. Just, uh, just experiential data. evidence, I was sort of maybe from I, your... I, I guess it'd be rough, roughly 50-50 okay. local yeah. versus import. That allows uh, imports to have a, a massive segment of the of the market potentially. Yeah, huge. It is. It's um, certainly Sydney and Melbourne. They're, they're, the dining cultures are, are well up until recently were very highly evolved, and I think really exciting places to be because you can drink anything from anywhere. I mean, was France and like the, the so sort of the old um, established um, countries of France and Italy were they the the the, uh, the lion's share of that? Yeah, I think Melbourne's certainly a Burgundy and Barolo town, so you tend to see lots of entry-level Burgundy right through to, to Grand Cru's and then it's definitely sort of then you'd move into sort of the Rhones and Juras and Jurançon and the Loire, less so maybe Bordeaux and Melbourne. There's people that collect Bordeaux, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of people that drink Bordeaux in, in, in restaurants. And then Italy is, is a huge, huge part in the, the Melbourne market and Tuscany, um, the Piedmonte, of course, but then even all of the other regions, the the, the islands as well. Certainly, we're seeing more and more wines come out of Sicily, Mount Etna, right through the Mediterranean as well. And you mentioned um, price point or value when you were talking about South African wine. Do you think there's a bit of a price ceiling currently for for New World wine um, outside of Australia in Australia? If you know what I mean, other New yeah, World countries. Is that would that be a fair statement? I, th- I think because there's so few people that are really experienced in terms of drinking South African wine in the Australian marketplace, you've got to get them hooked and that means you've got to offer a degree of value and, again, exceed their expectations so that they're getting a glass in a restaurant and going, oh, my God, that's amazing and it's only it's only $15 a glass. That's great. Let's have a bottle. And then they're taking note of the producer. They're then hopefully going to a retail store and then thinking more broadly about South Africa but looking for that wine. If they can't get it, maybe choosing something else that, if we don't bring it in, probably disappoints them. <laughs> <laughs> Very subtle there. <laughs> and would that be the same for other New World countries in Australia? So, you know, I'm thinking sort of more, you know, South America, North America. I mean, New so Zealand's a bit of a different story because it's such a, it's almost like a, a, a domestic wine, I suppose, in terms of its um, saturation. New Zealand, we consider them to be cousins or brothers or sisters or whatever you call them. So they're part of the, they're part of the Australian family. They're certainly part of the, the the tax family, aren't they? I mean, they're taxed the same yeah. way, and it's it's there's no uh, import tax. They get their same benefits from selling wine in Australia that Australian producers do. So in that sense, the free trade agreement that exists between Australia and New Zealand essentially um, levels the market to make the markets fully equal. Producers, in theory, on both sides. And the tax regimes on wine are very different in both countries, I think. So mm. it means that Kiwi producers are very heavily incentivised to sell wine in Australia, less so perhaps the other way. 
And Chile and Argentina, I mean, probably internationally, they're probably seen as biggest new world competitors to what South Africa is doing at the moment. Are they doing there's, some interesting? Are you just seeing some interesting stuff from from those countries in Australia? Yeah, there's a number. Of, there's a number of I could probably name three or four specialist importers that are focusing on the wines of South America, be it Chile or Argentina, and I think the the bigger retailers are also like shipping their own containers over both from South Africa but also from South America. And I think the the wines are probably perceived in similar ways in terms of that quality-to-value relationship that exists between them. But again, if if you're in a restaurant in Australia, a lot of consumers are either looking for something that's local um, or they're looking for the, the comfortable benchmarks of, of Europe. And then there's probably, that's probably 90% of everything that's sold in, in restaurants. And then there's 10%, which allows for basically the rest of the world to slot in as the the point of difference or the experiential offering that's sort of slightly different yeah i was going to ask you about that so for example on a, on a list of 50 wines so you know 20 red 20 white uh, a few bubbles and maybe a couple of uh of, uh, of, of, of sweeties and, and rosés you would think there'd probably be about five spots for south america us and south africa collectively yeah exactly i think that's yeah. that and again, that's in general in general terms. That's probably about right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a. I think that's going to be a very useful insight for a lot of producers and and importers and um, into that market for sure. In terms of Australian drinking patterns, is Pinot Gris still kicking goals? What's the What's the story there? I mean, is it Pinot Grigio, yeah, two, Sauvignon two, Blanc, that sort of vibe, or what's it? The poor spots that we want in restaurants are definitely. If I'm selling into a restaurant, I'm hoping to get the Pinot Noir poor spot followed by the probably the Pinot Gris or Scott. They're the, they're the two high-volume movers in restaurants. Chardonnay seems to be increasing. Shiraz has waned. It used to be um, Shiraz, then, then Pinot. Now that's inverted, but Shiraz is still probably number two. But obviously in Australia, there's a huge amount of Shiraz that's um, produced, so those spots are pretty fiercely competed for. As we're seeing right around the world, there's the macro trend of people wanting to drink sort of lighter, lower alcohol wines. So that's certainly prevalent in the Australian marketplace as well. So things like bridles like Gamay uh, are starting to really be championed. So yeah, anything that's sort of a little bit softer, lighter. People don't okay. want to be smashed around the head with oak. So the Bordeaux varieties are non-players in terms of a restaurant um, scene? In terms of the restaurant scene, I, I haven't seen much Cabernet sold for almost probably 20 years. When I first started working in the industry, Cabernet was a huge, huge part of the marketplace. Died a pretty pretty slow and sudden death, I think. How can it be slow and, and sudden? Well, sorry, not slow and sudden. It, it, it died a pretty sudden death. Okay, um, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I think I'm personally responsible for an increasing consumption of wine in the Australian marketplace at the moment. Um, <laughs> and that slow and sudden comment is directly linked to the two bottles of wine that I had last night. Yeah, fair enough. I drank them but, slow, but yeah. the effect was sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was slow, but God damn it happened quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think interestingly with Cabernet, we're seeing producers that are making that lighter, finer sort of old school claret style where the alcohols are down at sort of 12.5%. We're actually seeing some green, green shoots in Cabernet with sensitive producers that are making that style. It's, I don't think it's ever going to hit the highs that it once, once did in the Australian marketplace, but trend is, a, trend is a funny thing and wine can be like fashion. It sort of it comes in cycles. So who knows what's, what we're going to be drinking in five or 10 years' time, but 
from my experience, Cabernet is certainly one of the varietals where you can find some absolute bargains in the Australian yeah. market because it's completely underappreciated. Yeah, it's so, just the demand has sunk so low and the supply is still is still more or less there, it seems. Yeah, exactly. So you can like for example, my local bottle shop, I can I can go there and I can get Cabernet from uh, bottled in nineteen ninety four and nineteen ninety five from one of the leading producers in the Geelong region. It's drinking beautifully and it costs me uh, $12.50 a bottle. That's from one of the top three producers in the Geelong region. You can see how non-economic that is in the context of the Australian wine landscape, but God damn it, it's good for the consumer. Yeah, bloody tasty stuff. <laughs> damn straight. Well, Cabernet, yeah. when it's in the window, is is a, a thing of thing of beauty, but yeah, it takes a while sure. to get there. From the Australian producer's point of view, I mean, I've been away for seven years. I've been, I've been obviously visiting quite frequently, but I spend that time really trying to push South African wine, I guess, and meeting up with people. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time in the production areas or, or, or speaking to winemakers. What's been happening there? I mean, I, obviously we saw Tara Sakoto came to visit us, well, not visit us, but came to visit South Africa for the, for the Swatland Heritage Festival a few years ago and spent a, a bit of time with him there and had a good chat about the sort of the, um, the Adelaide Hills guys. What's happening on the Australian producer's um, side of things? My thoughts are taking the wind, I suppose, of the Australian industry at the moment, particularly on the back of the devastating bushfires that affected so many so many parts of, of southeastern Australia back in December and January. I think the number one concern within the industry is about climate change and not necessarily mitigation but adaption. So what do vineyards and wineries do to think about where we're going to be in a climate sense in 10 or 20 years from now, what varieties to plant, how to mitigate the, the, the issues of a warmer, potentially drier climate. And that, that sort of, I think there's sort of a movement south. So uh, the bigger companies are sort of heading, heading south towards Tasmania. So there may not be outside of a few regions, there may not be Pinot and mainland Australia anymore. That's at the highest level. And obviously we'll see how that plays out and it's going to be different for everyone and there'll always be different climates that react a little bit differently or areas that, whose climates act, act a bit differently. It's not just warming, it's, it's climate change. But Are they looking for the high altitude, higher altitude vineyards as well, as well as going uh, more southern? Yeah, absolutely. So basically chasing wetter regions. So not far from where we live is the um, Otway Ranges, which is a beautiful sort of national park, but tucked into that you've got quite a quite a wet area that traditionally has had very little vineyard activity. And I think some of this, so there's certainly some people that are moving into that area because it's it's marginal now, but maybe in 10 or 20 years, it's it's not going to be marginal. It'll be perfect for Pinot Noir. There's lots of people thinking about it and putting plans in place to think about the future because obviously it's such a, it's a long, low game, this, this viticulture game, but um, you've got to be thinking ahead. Well, maybe if I ask you on specific varieties, what's happening in Australia, I can run through a few. Maybe you can chat about some up-and-coming varieties that are relatively new but are having a bit of an impact on uh, on the marketplace. So you said Shiraz. What's happening with Shiraz? I mean, it's a huge question, but is it the same thing as, as Pinot Noir in terms of it's moving more and more south? Are the, are the strongholds of you know, Hunter Valley, Barossa, McLaren Vale, uh, Heathkit, are those areas still pumping out some really great wines? You know, there's still well, there's still wonderful wines produced, and I think Shiraz is one of those varietals that sort of it can it can handle a bit more heat. So, um, in the cooler climates of Victoria, you might find that those wines look a little bit more Barossa in the in the warmer years. And certainly within the Barossa, you've got producers like Alex Head, who I work with. He's moving 
a lot of his fruit sourcing from the, the valley floor, where he's historically purchased fruit and he's moving into the Eden Valley, so heading to, to altitude to chase slightly finer, cooler, flu, cooler fruit um, that's harvested maybe in March or April rather than in February when you're still getting caned by, by sun and heat. So it's sort of just obviously higher quality fruit um, and easier to work with in the, in the winery. I'm assuming there's a price difference between the valley floor and the, the Eden Valley fruit or not necessarily? Not necessarily. It's probably okay. more about access, but that may change over time. In Alex's case, he's always been slightly ahead of the curve. He's a deep thinker, so maybe there'll be people sort of following his moves over the, the next three to five years, which then puts pressure on prices, but we'll see. Already mentioned Cabernet in the market in the marketplace. What about Cabernet in the in the vineyards? I mean Coonawarra, Margaret River, I mean they're the two probably two Cabernet areas that uh, classic Cabernet areas, I suppose, along with maybe Yarra Valley, but that's such a small niche uh, style. What's happening with Cabernet? You're talking about very different marketplaces. Western Australian Cabernet, my perception is it's still going quite quite strongly. And I think that's because of support within its local marketplace, but also its ability to export at a decent price because it has got its own brand. Coonawarra certainly had that, but I certainly in the Victorian marketplace, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen a single bottle of Coonawarra Cabernet, even on a wine list for five or 10 years, maybe. Yeah, I was it's, the same. I mean, I left in 2000 and start of 2013, and I was only selling Coonawarra Cabernet that was 10 years old. It, uh, exactly. It's sort of, I think there's a, a place for it, but like Coonawarra Cabernet doesn't get good until it's 15 years in bottle, and then, then it's something that's quite special. But from a restaurant's point of view, buying it at the current release and sitting it on, on it for 15 years is just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so where there's and the opportunity to buy from auction house, maybe smarter songs might be buying something at a good price and putting it onto a list for their, for their customers to share those stories. But even even then, I don't think there's, there's that many people that are interested in buying it. The perception is that the people that are going to drink Cabernet are going to buy it themselves and put it under their stairs at home and then, then drink it in 10 years' time. It seems like Coonawarra from afar is a very um, static region, though. I mean, in terms of Market River has a lot of producers there. They're very active. It's quite a dynamic region, whereas Coonawarra seems to have been bought out by big conglomerate, big, um, big companies, and then when styles change, they just sort of leave the, leave the carcass to rot. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty accurate representation of what's happened there. It seems, it's, I think, it, I don't know the exact figures, but... It would certainly be, I would suggest more than two-thirds of Coonawarra would be owned by a big company and that in many ways has taken a little bit of a life out of it. It is also reasonably remote as a region. It's not linked to the Yarra Valley by comparison. You can drive 40 minutes from the CBD and you're hitting the edge of the Yarra Valley. So you've got a huge population that's there to drink and support that region, whereas Coonawarra, you've got to get to Adelaide and Adelaide has Barossa that's a lot closer, so maybe that's why Barossa gets sort of championed a little bit more. You mentioned Pinot Noir. Is that still going strong? I mean, I couldn't, when I was in restaurants in Melbourne, this is 10 years ago, I couldn't keep up with Pinot Noir on the list, both Australian and uh, Burgundian. Um, is it the it's same still, situation? It's still, it's still a, yeah, it's still the biggest red category in Australian restaurants without question. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's the poor spot you want because it tends to be at a higher value rather than people sort of chasing discounts and and you'll sell a lot of a lot of it. And what what producers of Pinot are we looking at? What, who's lead, who's leading the pack in Australia at the moment? Is it still sort of like Bindi, Michael Dillon and, and those sort of guys yeah, or who else? Who else is making some really good stuff? Producers in Tasmania that are having a red hot crack now. I think the popularity of Tasmanian Pinot is, is sort of 
only increasing. There's a lot of vineyards going in, into Tasmania, so it'll be interesting to see as increasing supply hits the market in, in Melbourne and Victoria, whether that the, the high prices that they're able to achieve now for their, for their finished wine, whether that's maintained or whether it sort of it, it comes off the boil a little bit. The dress circle of, of wine regions around the capital of Melbourne, so Geelong, Macedon, Yarra Valley and Mornington, they're all, all very much focused on Pinot because um, it's an easy way to, may not be necessarily the easiest variety to grow, but it's certainly the easiest variety to sell at the other end. So the economics of it drives it. And in terms of leading producers, yeah, I think Michael Dillon at Bindi still well and truly up there. Yeah, there's a, a number of, of great players out there. Andrew Marks has taken over his family estate, Pembroke Hill, who, who sort of championed that sort of very fine, light, ethereal um, style of Pinot Noir. Timo Mayer, who's like the Australian version of Artie Badenhorst. Well, the German-Australian version of, uh, of Artie Badenhorst. <laughs> uh, he does fabulous Pinot. Mac Forbes gets lots of, lots of attention, obviously. Um, yeah, there's numerous producers that are, that are doing great things. But Mac's just so good looking, it's hard to ignore him. Yeah, I think he, he sells the passion very well. <laughs> Okay, and uh, what other red varieties are on the up and up? Is there, is there a sort of, a, as you say, it's a Burgundy and Barolo town. Are you seeing many Italian varieties that are planted in Australia come up or is it more the Gamay lighter styles? Uh, Sangiovese is probably, within my portfolio, I've got a producer, Mark Walpole from Beechworth, and he is Mr. Sangiovese in Australia in terms of the varietal or the clonal material that he's helped bring into the country, but also his, his passion for it. He, until recently, also had a business importing um, Italian oak into Australia and distributing that. So his, his Sangiovese, based on value and quality, is probably one of the biggest selling wines within my entire portfolio. Yeah, well. Um, and it is seasonal, but May through to September, it's, it's probably the wine that I sell the most bottles of. And I think that's because it's perfectly appropriate as a varietal and as a wine in a restaurant because it's so, so diverse in terms of its applications. Uh, and it just makes so many people happy, and he he makes it bloody well. It's a it's a cracking drink. So Sangiovese certainly has a place, um, and with the alternative varietals, I think Sangiovese provides a nice roadmap for some of the newer varietal material that's coming in, or clonal material that's coming in. Maybe Alianico or Nero de Avla or all these sort of other Mediterranean varieties that are starting to be planted in that. There's probably a 10-year period where the vineyards are planted and people are sort of seeing the fruit um, and they've got five years of sort of get, getting used to it and then maybe there's sort of some other clonal material that's a bit better that comes in and there's sort of reworking of the vineyards but also the winemakers getting used to the varietals and how best to, to make them and make them in a way that's sort of sensitive to the place that they're grown but also um, provides a, a nod to the varietal, the, the true home of those varieties, I suppose. So it just takes a while for winemakers to get, get their head around to how best to make those wines as well. The, the vineyards being more and more established, there'll be more and more nuance in the fruit and, and thus hopefully better wines as, as, or more, more complex wines and more nuanced wines going forward. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think another varietal that's starting to gain, gain some good traction in Australia is sort of, and again, that's that re- return to that pendulum swing in terms of fashion and preference is Grenache. And that's mm-hmm. because there's some great producers out there that are, I think you've got lots of old, we've got the, the wonderful asset of lots of old Grenache vineyards in Australia um, that are low yielding and produce concentrated fruit. 
but some younger winemakers are seen sort of maybe picking the fruit a little bit earlier, looking for sort of acid and freshness in the wines that's natural rather than added and the complexity and concentration and deliciousness that you can get in old vine Australian Grenaches is certainly starting to get the attention of a lot of sommeliers in restaurants but also the wider wider marketplace as well. Is there a renaissance just based on those old vineyards or are more people planting it also? Uh, there's certainly, I think, uh, again, thinking about sort of the warming climate, you've got, so Mark, for example, in Beechworth, he's, he's looking at the bulk of his Pinot Noir vineyard is going to be um, grafted over to Grenache. Oh, right. Um, why is that? I mean, if Pinot Noir is such a, a walk-up home run, why is he grafting over to, to Grenache? Uh, well, there's sort of warmer parts of that vineyard that when he's harvesting the fruit, he's already dealing with shrivel and okay. then having to compensate for that in the in the winery. Yep. Um, so he's, he's looking for balanced fruit and the, the bulk of that vineyard's just not delivering it. So he's either selling that fruit and making less of the Pinot. He's a big, deep thinker. He's planted Alianico at his home vineyard and his idea is that in 20 years' time, that's going to be in the perfect window in terms of the, the climate. Just on the farm, now. <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he's not bad at it. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> What's the problem, mate? <laughs> Maybe you can tell him that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, from here I can. Yeah, no problems. <laughs> if, if Mark can't make it work, I'm not sure who could, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Mark, and he was obviously the, the head winemaker or head viticulturalist at Brown Brothers for uh, a couple of decades that within his tenure there, he was responsible for bringing huge quantities of alternative varietal material into Australia. In terms of low import conventional viticulture, I don't think there's many, if any, better in Australia. The other end, another guy I worked with, Stuart Proud, is probably the leading sustainable viticulturalist in Australia, which is sort of zero input, almost um, not permaculture, but it's beyond organics and biodynamics in terms of his approach. Post-organic. Exactly. They're, they're the two guys that if I was to plant, stupid enough to plant a vineyard, then that'd be the the first two phone calls. Why would it be stupid to plant a vineyard? Uh, the investment that's required. I don't have a million dollars to lose. Yeah, right. Okay. What sort of uh, input do you name in one, one million bucks? What does that get you? Well, not much in terms of property if mm. you're anywhere near the cap- uh, capital city in Australia anymore. We'll see what, we'll see what the, the current crisis does to property prices over the coming sort of five years to ten years and whether it sort of um, is a bit of a reset but... What actually happens there is anyone's guess. At the moment, like I, my wife makes makes some wonderful wines. She sources fruit from a diversity of regions um, under the Red Wines label. So she buys fruit from the Grampians, also Grash from the Brossa, um, Riesling from um, Geelong, uh, Nebbiolo from Heathcote. And the access to an ease of buying fruit rather than farming it, just um, at this stage, it's it's um, it's just the smart play until we can build up enough capital to then look at our own place. Is there a lot of other guys doing that model in terms of that negotiate model? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, it's a huge part of the industry. It's not necessarily understood by consumers. Everyone imagines that the, the winemaker has their own winery and their own vineyard, but that's, that's not reflected in the reality of the industry. The Australian industry is much stronger for it because there's a diversity of a diversity of styles and uh, and labels, which makes it so much more exciting. Just to diverge a little bit, um, how does uh, Sierra uh, position herself in the marketplace in, against all of the other guys doing a similar thing? I mean, what's the 
Well, you've, you've, you've met Sarah. You've spent the odd night <laughs> um, <laughs> being entertained or entertaining her. Um, and she is, there's no better spokesperson for the wine she makes than herself. Like She's uh, a great champion of the variety she's working with, um, the region she's working within, but also the style that she's trying to make. And her, her experience is very diverse and very international, but um, I think probably one of the places that she most strongly connects with outside of Australia is... Um, Pierre Chemet um, at Domaine de Vissou in, in Beaujolais. So there's a stamp of that region's wines and all of the wines that she makes. Uh, so certainly all the reds that she makes. So there's a little bit of a little bit of gamay, if not in reality, then in spirit in, in her Shiraz and her Grenache and also her Nebbiolo. She likes light and ethereal. So that's a that's a compelling story for the, the market at the moment. She tells that story very well. And is there a lot of camaraderie between producers in a similar position there or is it sort of a little bit more standoffish to protect their, their clientele? And I think there's both. The wine industry in Australia is very collaborative and there's the good and there are the bad. But by and large, I think most producers have strong networks of peers that they can call on for advice and um, more experienced producers are generally very willing to act as mentors for younger producers that are coming up. And there's some exceptions there, but by and large, I think the attitude of most Australian producers is we're in it together and let's try and rise with the tide. If you're doing good, great things, we should champion that. So everyone's drinking more wine rather than drinking gin, for example. Yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. Maybe some white varieties. Uh, Riesling. What's happening with Riesling in Australia? Riesling used to be the, the cabernet of the Australian marketplace. In what sense? In, in the sense that it was the variety that consistently offered the, the best value in the Australian marketplace because it wasn't necessarily understood by consumers. It, it was perceived as either being always sweet or consumers never knew what they were going to get, whether it was going to be a sweet style or something that was teeth-destroying acidic. But I think the work that a number of great importers in Australia have done sort of bringing the best variety examples from Germany but also producers in Australia have sort of raised the, the quality of wines that they're producing. It's still an accessible varietal, but there are a lot more people drinking it now, which is a great thing. Um, and it works for producers because it's one of those varieties that you can get into bottle pretty quickly um, and then get it out to market pretty quickly as well. So maybe even within the same year that you, you've harvested the fruit, you can have wine on uh, retailer's shelves or on a restaurant wine list. So the, the, the cash flow pressure is sort of relieved somewhat when you start to get money back in the door. And has the style of wine changed because of that sort of magnet of quick turnover? I mean, are they, are they becoming softer, more drinkable uh, earlier on? I think we're seeing return to maybe decades past where there tends to be a little bit of residual sugar left left in a lot of Rieslings for texture but also approachability, but also purely just for drinkability because they can be effortlessly delicious that way. But again, it's it's about the working with the right producers or drinking from the right producers. Riesling as a variety, obviously, is one of those one of those varieties that really represents the place in which it's grown, but also what is done to it in the winery. So yeah, it's still some of the, the great drinking for me in this country. And it's still sort of Eden, Clare and cooler parts of Victoria and Tasmania. Are they the sort of the, the hit spots and probably Great Southern in in Great Southern US? Australia, um, the ACT, so Canberra as well, yep. is doing some cracking rippling, particularly if you like that sort of that sort of high natural, high levels of natural acidity from cool climates. Definitely sort of the, the Great Southern region of WA, but... Um, Western Victoria as well, around 
around Henty. There's some some great examples around out of Drumborg and um, Crawford Rivers. Probably still for me the, the greatest Riesling produced in this country. The r- right bottles from the right vintage uh, will take on any great Chardonnay from from Burgundy, and pound for pound will deliver probably ten times over. Yeah, awesome. Semillon. What's happening with Semillon? Are you, st- are you do you seeing much Semillon in Melbourne, or is uh, uh, all the Sydney Sydney side is drinking it all? Yeah, no, it's, I think there's there's two regions that are sort of known for producing Semillon in Australia and they're um, the Barossa with a richer, fuller style and then the Hunter, which is the uh, acidic, linear style. We don't see any of it really in the Melbourne marketplace at all. It's not something that's really championed outside of uh, a wine options wine in a, a, a curio sense. Um, interestingly, Sierra's uh, bought some semillon fruit this year from a vineyard that's about two k's from our home that was planted 45 years ago. We had no idea it was there. I've lived here for almost 15 years and had no idea that this vineyard existed. But uh, we pulled some of the fruit off, and I'm really optimistic as to the the, the quality of the wine that's going to be produced. It's uh, yeah, sitting in awesome. New York at the moment. Looks bloody cool. Sierra's Sierra's not so enamoured by it. It's still got a little bit of that sort of vegetal green bean, slightly capsicum issues going on but um i think it's probably going to be really really quite special we'll say and is that a uh, a varietal issue or a um like a varietal characteristical characteristic or do you think it's um a bit of reduction as well uh i think it's what is it my foxy pyrazine so similar to the the cabernet family it's yep. sort of, just a varietal um, fruit issue rather than a Exactly. So yeah. the, the only way to deal with it would be more time in the vineyard, basically leaf pup plucking to open up the canopy and get rid of mm-hmm. that mythoxypyrazine. But for me, it actually sits quite nicely in the wine and with the new oak that it's gone into, that will meld, I think, to be quite seamless. Okay. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that wine through the lavage and, and where it goes on the concentration of the fruit and the, the, the length of flavour and the inherent flavour in it. I'm, I'm reasonably confident that it's going to be quite tasty. Chardonnay. I left Australia at probably the, maybe just post the peak of the, we're talking about reduction, pendulum swing towards reduction, uh, but towards, yep. you know, in inverted commas, minerality as a sort of a, a movement the against the, sort of the, the big, heavy, um, dense wines of the, the, the late 80s and the 90s. Is that still happening or is it corrected a little bit or are we, are we still getting a lot of... If we're talking sort of a pendulum swing, it's probably swung back maybe about a quarter of the way. Um, okay. So we're not facing that sort of... Almost the criticism of the, some of those wines were inherently underripe. So maybe there's a little bit more generosity in the wines in terms of the ripeness, but at the same time, I think people are still increasingly looking for lighter, finer, tighter, more acidic wines as a generalisation. So that means that it's certainly not returning to that, with exceptions, but by and large, it's certainly not returning to the, the, the dark old days of um, drinking butter in a glass, essentially. One of the, the accusations was that uh, it was more about winemaking than, than vintage or vineyard. Um, was that sort of reduction because it was so overpowering and so overt? Yeah, it potentially detracted from, from site. Yeah, and so there was seems seemed to be sort of like, well, uh, what am I paying for in this sense? And yep. I, in terms of the consumer, in terms of a, a restaurant customer, what sort of style are they preferring or is it a full spectrum? It's certainly still a full spectrum. I'm surprised constantly how many times I get asked by sommeliers for richer, fuller styles of Chardonnay because that's what their customers want, restaurant lists. Uh, yep. But at the same time, in terms of the drinking that I, I'm, I'm doing, it tends to be at that sort of, I want wines where you can see the vineyard, but I also want wines that are refreshing and 
focused and elegant and long and linear. Yeah. So maybe there's a bit of a disconnect between what the public wants and what the producers are making in that instance? I wouldn't say there's necessarily a disconnect. I think consumers just have to find the styles and the producers that are making the wines that they like to drink. But, I mean, are people still making that that style? Yeah, there's definitely there definitely are regions yeah. and regions where it's impossible not to make those styles, I suppose. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, and, again, that might change over time where they're no longer viable, but... Mm-hmm. Um, they're still they're still there and, and making those wines for the time being. That's for sure. Cool. And who, in your opinion, is making sort of the, the uh, among the top Chardonnays in, in Australia at the moment? I think well, Michael Dillon at Bindi's making a fantastic Chardonnay. Mark Walpole at Fighting Gully Road. I absolutely adore his Chardonnay. It's uh, probably one of the biggest selling wines of mine at the moment. And Beechworth is a region. It's the smallest GI in Australia by both number of producers and area planted, but that's been since um, that sort of breakthrough vintage of Geoconda, what was it 1996 perhaps? 95, um, I think, yeah. Yeah, that sort of really put that region on the map in terms of high-quality Australian Chardonnay of a more generous style, I suppose, that still maintained acid freshness. So Mark's vineyards up there are delivering that in spades. They've got the inherent power of the Beechworth region, but then you've got this sort of tightness and focus that, that sort of holds that power together, cracking wine. Um, there's some great examples coming out of Tasmania as well. Meadowbank, I think, Yarra Valley's doing some great examples. So obviously one that's talked about probably most often in terms of iron sommelier circles is um, David Bicknell's Oak Ridge, the Thunder and Diamond vineyard is, is, a, is a cracking drink. But also heading over to Western Australia, there's some great examples being produced over there as well. Sauvignon Blanc, are people still drinking it or not anymore? There'll always be a place for it. I think um, the the avalanche that we experienced here in the Australian marketplace from um, our, our our cousins over in New Zealand, well and truly we drowned in it for a while. And like the Australian market as a generalisation going into the US and the UK, Kiwis may have made the mistake of sort of basically chasing the, the, the dollar and um, reducing prices an increasing increasing supply, so that it became almost commoditized and of a much lower value than it than it previously was. And certainly, tastes have changed in Australia as well. Whereas you wanted the Sauvignon Blanc core ten or fifteen years ago, yeah, you don't really care about the Sauvignon Blanc core anymore. Sauvignon, that's um, I've just written that down. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> who, coined, <laughs> who, who coined that phrase? I can't remember where I first heard it, but it's yeah. um, one of the nicer ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more derogatory. Yeah, some um, some rare diplomacy uh, <laughs> about Sauvignon Blanc. You mentioned Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio before. Are there fine wines being made from that variety or is it all mostly mid to lower end, just bang it out, pour it, pour it down people's throats? Sort of Probably stuff. 90% of what I see in Australia is literally just get it off the vine and get it into bottle and try and make as many people as happy as possible at a cheap price. But there's certainly, I think Pinot Gris is, is probably one of the varietals that's more site sensitive than even Pinot Noir. It really is important it's grown so uh, and also yields for, uh, like contribute to the quality of the wine so a lot of the Pinot Green Grigio in Australia tends to be in the wrong areas and maybe cropped at levels that are 
uh, a bit higher than fine wine demands, but there's certainly producers out there that are in the right place and where the vines are yielding appropriate amounts of fruit and they're making actually textural, interesting wines. It's not my vari- it's not my varietal of choice. I'd much rather drink Riesling or Chardonnay as a generalisation. Um, one of the wines that Sierra made last year was out of the Mornington and was a Pinot Gris and it amazed me in terms of the complexity and inherent deliciousness to that wine. It was a real credit to her and she done vintage in Germany the year previous uh, and I think the the wine style that really inspired her was um, some of the grease that she'd seen out of Baden in particular. She pretty much nailed it in, in, in the right place, in the right hands. Um, grease can be pretty amazing in Australia. And other white varieties that are on the up or of, of, of note? Vermentino, uh, is, that, is that still still a thing or...? We're seeing, seeing a lot of Fiano in the marketplace at the moment. Vermentino, um, there's certainly new new clients coming in, so it'd be worthwhile having a chat with with Mark at Fighting Gully Road at some point because he's he's got his finger on the pulse in terms of what's in the country at the moment and what's going through the quarantine process. Um, he's one of the the founders of the Alternative Varietals Wine Challenge that is held each each year in Australia, and I think the leading trophy out of that wine competition actually then gets to nominate which variety they'd like to bring into the country um, and that variety then goes through the quarantine program. So that's that's one of the more interesting wine shows in Australia at the moment, I think. Fiano and probably Vermentino are the two, two biggest that I can think of at the moment um, in terms of varieties that are making a bit of an, an impact in, in restaurants at least. Yeah, right. And, and is that just adding, I mean, they, they seem to be both very uh, non-fruit weight varieties. Um, so is that sort of adding some balance to the other sort of potentially very ripe fruit heavy varieties that are available to make wine in, in Australia? Yeah, I think they tend to be, those varietals tend to be sort of about sort of talking about varietals. <laughs> I mean, it's about the conversation of appropriate varietals for the climate that we, we live in, particularly in the warmer Riverland areas, which are responsible for, I think, almost 30% of the Australian grape crush. You've still got Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir grown in this arid, very warm climate. So I think with varietals like Vermentino and Fiano and other Mediterranean varieties, it's about looking at the context of the Australian landscape and varietals that are appropriate for that landscape. So that's certainly a discussion that's happening in Australia at the moment. It's looking at those varietals that are going to put less demands on water usage will ripen later in the year in cooler weather will retain acidity naturally in warmer climates as well so that you've got more balanced fruit coming off the vine going into the winery that requires little to no and hopefully no adjustment at all potentially there are varieties that can go into bottle early also and be enjoyed earlier as well they don't require two, three years in bottle to, to settle down or soften out or, or, or develop. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. You're also part of the Sommelier Association in Australia? Yeah. I think certainly dates back to when, when you were um, still in Australia uh, and, and working as the executive officer before you headed off to, to Cape Town. But I think it's almost 14 years now that I've, I've been part of Sommeliers Australia and we've uh, I got the email this morning, obviously, meetings uh, in person are not, not going ahead at the moment, but we schedule one for the end of the month by Zoom to talk about the event schedule this year and what the plan is in terms of when we can actually hold events again. Maybe just give us a brief rundown of Sommeliers Australia and what's happening and what the initiatives are and what the what the goal of the association is and what you're, what, what you're actually doing at the moment. 
Well, the objective of the, the Sommeliers Australia has always been to sort of further the standards of wine service in restaurants, the education of sommeliers in Australia, but also to, to celebrate the role of the sommelier within the, the industry, but also within the wider public in some sense, I suppose. So it's, it's recognising what's important to the, the skill set of sommeliers and then trying to provide the opportunity for those skills to be honed or celebrated or tested at some level as well. So there's there's an annual competition in Australia looking for the best sommelier in Australia and that then feeds into the international competition to, to find the world's best sommelier. In a normal year, we'd probably have between 12 and 20 different events around Australia that are sort of be they tastings or panel-led discussions about what it means to provide service to a guest um, and how best to achieve that or whether it's about more the business side of things in terms of looking at the COGS and how to run a beverage program to make it valuable for the business owner um, or for yourself. In a, in a general sense, the mission of the, the association and it's something that I've certainly wanted to champion over past years and originally as a younger worker in restaurants and familiar, I was, I was a beneficiary of the those that went before me and were happy to sort of mentor me in terms of world's wine landscape, but also how to write a, write a wine list. So it's nice. It's a nice outfit for me to be able to give back to the industry that I love. And certification in Australia, is that still quite a big uh, thing in terms of do sommeliers, are sommeliers happy to call themselves sommeliers without a certification or is there sort of pressure within the industry? That's something that's really changed in Australia over the last decade you now with the introduction of sort of Westit but more so the quartermaster sommeliers. I think it's the, it's not the only pathway to becoming a sommelier, but it's certainly in, increasingly regarded as being important, important by employers that there is some level of certification there and the basic levels of knowledge are, need to be addressed and those courses sort of address those. So it's, a, it's something that's, um, I think, even for people that want to work in wine, it's increasingly looked looked at because it is a, a good structured way of getting the knowledge that you need to, to do the job well. Thank you, Evan. I uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, and I hope you stay safe and uh, and give my love to Sierra and Reed. I shall, mate. Um, stay safe, stay stay well, and vice versa. Cheers, mate. Be well. <laughs>